Good morning, Friendship Church. Good to see your smiling faces out there. You made it. You got up. You had your coffee, I assume. Or if you don't drink coffee, I don't know how you do it. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I, I was formerly the middle school pastor here at Friendship Church, and I've taken on a new role at Bethany Global University. Uh, I'm building a what I hope to be a very dynamic gap year program called Lead Venture, uh, focused on 18, 19-year-olds, but going all the way up to like 25. 18 to 25 is kind of that sweet spot of young adult life where maybe you're still figuring out what you're going to do. So uh, it's leadership, evangelism, apologetics, discipleship. Um, it's your calling. It's your identity, you know, growing deeper in your identity. You know, the um, trend lately is that not everybody goes to college. And um, so when you don't go to college, the question is why? What unto? Like I've heard parents say things like, well, you could take a year off, but not a year off from the Lord. So if you're going to go somewhere, go do a mission for a few months or, or go somewhere. That, that's just that, um, what this is, is it's a program for people to come for a year, for students to come, get a little taste of a college setting, uh, but separate from the college itself. Uh, more than anything, by the end of the two semesters, the year, my hope is that a student can go, I'm more confident in who I am in Christ and what I think I'm called to do. Uh, because God's uniquely made each person to fulfill a calling that somebody else won't fulfill because they're not them. And so being able to find that intimate connection with the Lord and then more clarity on their calling. So they don't just do anything, but they do something more purposeful. So of course my hopes in that is uh, to catch some of the students that are walking away from Christ, um, that they would not walk away from Christ, but they give a year uh, to find out uh, a biblical worldview that might be shaky in their mind right now where they're, they're wrestling with questions, they'd be able to dialogue around those questions. Uh, statistics say that 10 to 12 years old is where students start to second-guess and deconstruct. Uh, so the ones that have deconstructed in our day, their faith, it started a long time ago, and they just didn't have a platform. They didn't have a place to be able to ask hard questions. So um, this is a vital opportunity for me to take on. My wife already also has started a new ministry. She started a um, 501c3 homeschool co-op uh, out of the Shakopee campus. And so she's excited to invite special needs kids, which is the first uh, in the state that we know of that has special needs kids involved in a homeschool co-op. And so we're excited for that. Uh, we love to stay connected uh, about the development of, of what we're doing. Um, we're looking for ministry partners as we move forward in uh, what we're doing in this next chapter of our life, so we'd love to stay in contact. Uh, with that, would, would you pray with me? Jesus, we just come before you. We know that your word is living. It's active. We know that your word transforms us. Lord, we know that your word gets in deeper uh, than thoughts and gets deep into the thoughts and motives, discerning our thoughts and our motives, and into bone and marrow, into the depths of our soul. Uh, Lord, like nothing else, nothing else can get access to that. And so we ask God today, Lord, that you would get in to the bones and marrow, into the thoughts and intents of our heart, that your word would renew our mind and uh, renew a courageous surrender to you, God, to live wholeheartedly abandoned to you in this age. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to go to Psalm 63 today in epic poetry, in the series Epic Poetry. And when we do, or as we do, um, I want to uh, reference an early church father named Irenaeus, who was discipled by Polycarp, 
who was discipled by the Apostle John. So very close removed from the apostles, Irenaeus wrote this big book called Against Heresies, where he addressed the issues in the church where uh, people were either making Jesus to be less than God or less than man. Um, There were heresies that were coming up in the church that would threaten the simplicity of devotion to the truth of the gospel. So in this book, Against Heresies, Irenaeus said this uh, massive statement, the glory of God is man fully alive. He said the glory of God is man fully alive. And in the midst of talking about that, he was talking about having a real true vision of who God is and understanding who God is and approaching God based on who he is, not who we think he might be. And therefore, knowing God, glorifying God is what it means for mankind to be fully alive. Uh, The shorter Westminster Catechism says it like this, Uh, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And John Piper puts a little more twist on it and says, by enjoying him forever is what it means to glorify God. And, And so at the center of the center of who we are as people, we are designed by our creator to glorify him. And it's it's supposed to be a joyful, restful identity that we have, that he made us for himself and we're restless until we find our rest in him. That's the center of it all, is that we're to enjoy God, and that comes through glorifying Him. Well, we know that in this world, uh, that doesn't always happen. We are much more um, prone to sin because we're not enjoying God. And, you know, we're actually supposed to enjoy God. We're designed to enjoy God. And and the more that uh, the world comes in and steals our appetites and we start giving ourselves to worldly appetites, we start losing our appetite for God. We lose touch with our deep need for God and therefore we lose touch with this deep satisfying joy that comes only from God because we settle for lesser things. So we're creatures, as C.S. Lewis says, not of desires too great, but of desires too small. God made us to have great, deep consuming desires that would push us in the right direction. And so the stronger our desires are in God, the weaker the desires of sin can be. This is what Paul meant when he said we're no longer slaves to sin. You know, now we're slaves to righteousness. And so we can walk in the power of God uh, by his spirit and have our desires come more and more in line with his. Now God started this thing with a garden where there was perfect Unity, intimacy, harmony, no shame, no fear, no hurt, no death, no darkness. And he would walk customarily with his people, Adam and Eve, every day in the garden. And we see that when God comes to address them after the fall. He comes for their daily walk, comes into the cool of the day, into the garden for their walk with him. And they're hiding. And God says, I'm here. I showed up to walk. Where are you? Well, we, we knew we were naked and we hid ourselves. Well, who told you you're naked? God says. And who, who told you that you're naked? And did you eat from the fruit that I told you not to eat from? And like any good parent talking to their little kid to try to get them to come forth with their own honesty, God as the tender father, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the almighty, is as tender as a father. And he comes to the garden not with thunder and retribution that they deserved, but with a question, where are you? 
And that's the very question that God continually asks us as human beings. Where are you? He desires to have communion with us in all things, that there be no darkness, that we walk in the light as he is in the light. Right? That we, we confess our sins so that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness and we have greater joy. That's why these things are in place, that we'd have greater joy in fellowship with him. And so what we see is David, when he wrote this psalm about earnest desire, earnestly seeking God, he was want, running in the wilderness, running away from Saul. David was supposed to be the next king. But David would refuse to exalt himself and take over the kingship, but he entrusted to God the exaltation to the throne. And he even entrusted to God what Saul deserved. Though Saul was attacking David, David two times could have killed Saul and refused to and said, no, the Lord will take care of him. The Lord will take him out or he'll die in battle, but I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so what was David's secret in the midst of great trial? He sought God earnestly. So in that very setting in the Judean wilderness, David writes Psalm 63. And this is what it says in the first two verses. Oh God, you are my God. David's identifying God is his own possession. Isn't that phenomenal? Just think of God individually as your own portion. And possession. God calls us into that. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Earnestly I seek you and I thirst for you and I faint for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's desperation. And this is the kind of desperation the Lord wants us to understand with regards to the results of the fall and how they, they echo God's desire for intimacy across the chasm of our distance between us and God that God is committed to breaching, to, 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 um, to closing. God wants to close the chasm but in order for him to close the chasm, we need to know how deep and why and how far and broad this chasm is, this separation because of the fall. And this is what we each know by coming to terms with the gospel initially, you know, uh, to give our life to Jesus, to come before the cross and recognize it's not about what I can do, but it's about what Christ has done. And if that's true, it should not produce passive followers or passive pursuers of God. And if it does, then we have to assess where our appetites lie. Because as we compromise with worldliness, and we're satisfied with worldly desires, we lose our appetite for God to the proportion, direct proportion. And so as we seek God earnestly, we lose our desire for other things. We start to set aside time and spaces to seek God because we're losing our desires for this age. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6.14. Man never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. And so Paul's perspective of the world and its system, man's systems of control, wisdom, power, money, desires, 
was like a, as worthless as an object to someone dying on a cross. I'm dying. What do I have to do with any of this? And the world was glad to see Paul perish because they didn't want anything to do with Paul. And this is that demarcation line of discipleship. I've recognized how far I've gone from God, not only from my need to initially repent and give my life to Jesus because of his work on the cross, but now I want to separate myself with every part of my being from the system of the world that I may be a blazing, shining witness to him. And so coming to Christ is the cross, but being transformed into the image of Christ is through the cross. And so as our desires are crucified, the desires of our fleshly, worldly, satanic system are crucified in us, the desires like flowers in a garden come forth in us with a fresh aroma of eternity, of Eden. New desires, desires of God. It's almost like we have a memory of Eden even though we weren't there. Even though it was just Adam and Eve, it's like we have this memory of what it would have been, what it could have been, what it should have been, and we have this resonance in our heart saying, things are not okay as they are in this day and age. What's the solution, God? The solution, ironically, is hunger. Desperation and hunger. God's answer to the problems in the world is appetite. And so what we see in this psalm is that David is describing a kind of earnest seeking and a deep desperation as though you're in a wilderness with no water. And David says, this is where the broken and the contrite dwell. And what's the promise for the broken and contrite in heart? God is, Thomas, you know this one, God is Near. Yes. I knew that you knew it. Put you on the spot and everything. God's near to the broken and contrite. He opposes the proud and, and self-sufficient. And he is for the broken and the contrite in heart. So longing for, earnestly seeking him is something that David describes here. And Anytime that we talk about earnestly seeking God, we know that he's God, he's exalted, he's holy, he's high above it all, he's perfect in righteousness, he's filled with majesty, and a, a glorious light comes out of his presence. So when you think about seeking God, it should automatically put into our hearts a little bit of terror, a little bit of trembling, right? Because we're talking about seeking God. So never separated from seeking God is seeking his righteousness. This is why G Jesus said, seek his kingdom and his righteousness and everything you need to be provided for you. In Isaiah 26, um, the, the people of Israel described of as on their beds longing for the Lord, meditating on him in the night watches. And this statement following that passage, that verse in Isaiah 26, 8 says, um, when, you're, when the inhabitants of the earth experience your judgments, they learn righteousness. And so there are ways that God in this life leads his people, 
through trial and temptation and persecution to choose him and to press into his presence. And on the other hand, he's throwing obstacles in front of people who are still of the world system to warn them to flee the world system. And so God has his ways to set people up for opportunity to long for his righteousness, to seek him earnestly. And this is what David is describing in this psalm. Jesus said it like this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Or in Luke's uh, example of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Woe to you who are well fed now, and blessed are those who hunger. That's all he says. There's a blessed hunger from God, and that's the path back to what we are designed to be, wholeheartedly abandoned in all our desires, in all our resources, in all our personality, in all of our occupation, in all of our neighborliness, in all of our witness, and how we buy groceries, and wherever we go, it's not this you know, straight jacket of, of I better do right, it's this liberty of I want to live as a witness. I want to be real, open, and authentic about who God is, who I am and who I'm not, on this journey as a pilgrim. And so as pilgrims in this wilderness, as this life is described, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're longing for the breaking in of the age to come, the return of Jesus, the glorious one, who will wipe away every tear and take away all the pain of our toil of our pilgrimage. But until that day, we stand upright, sons and daughters of God, strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, working hard as soldiers to always be aware of what our commanding officer desires, not getting pulled aside by civilian affairs, and like an athlete who trains every day to exercise self-control in all things, so we do, throwing aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles as we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's a race. It's a battle. It's farming. It's an athlete training. All these descriptions of our faith show that This is a all-in commitment to learn to lose your life in this age by being a witness that the fragrant offering of Jesus on the cross is worthy of our whole life to display who he is, no matter what comes our way in opposition. Like Mary of Bethany, we pour a year's wages of precious perfume on his feet, knowing that it's preparing him for burial knowing that it's worthy worship, that he is the Lamb of God who gave his all for us, so now we give our all for him. And so earnestly we seek him. Verse 3 and 4 says, Because your steadfast love, Psalm 63, 3 and 4, is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live in your name. I'll lift up my hands. That steadfast love is... Covenant, faithful, loyal, steadfastness to an unfaithful people. That is this concept of chesed in the Hebrew. It's this commitment of God. Because your commitment to me, your steadfast love is better than life itself, I will praise you. You made me to know your steadfast love. So everything else gets pushed aside because your steadfast love is better than life. Jesus said life is more than the body and more than food and more than money in Matthew 6. He says, don't worry about what you wear, what you eat, what you drink. Your father knows what you need. Don't be like 
the people that don't know God, the pagans, they run after all these things. But your Father knows. And seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Everything you need will be added to you. Life is more than the body, more than food. Your loving kindness is better than life. And my lips will praise you. So, the psalm goes on in verse 5 through 8 to say, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Spiritual feast. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So much in this. Satisfied as with rich food. So as we seek God, our soul will be satisfied as though it took in Fatty meats and well-aged wine. <laughs> That's the promise of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah 25 describes it when God lifts the veil over all the nations and removes the curse. They'll be celebrating on the hill of the Lord with fatty meats and well-aged wine. Jesus, when he comes, there will be a marriage feast with the Lamb of God. And everything of our spiritual desires now points to that day, that, that longing for Eden, that longing for the age to come. The spirit and the bride say, come to Jesus. This is an identifier for us as the body of Christ, how we're prepared uh, for Jesus, is that do we understand that there's this longing for him to come back? And when our heart cries for him to come back, of course there's mixed emotions of loved ones that don't know him, and then there's the question of, am I really ready? What if he comes now? Will he be pleased? And all these human struggles that we all have in our, our mind. But ultimately, at our heart of heart level as a follower of Jesus, we're like, Jesus, it's been great to know you as in a mere dimly. To behold you as an emir, being transformed from glory to glory, to have your indwelling spirit. This is great. There have been great times of encounter with you, the living God. This is powerful, but you're not here with us. There's more to come. The spirit and the bride say come. We're called to also be a bride who's preparing for her groom to come. And deep desires and affections that we can have with Jesus to give us strength to overcome the baser affections of worldliness, reputation, image, wisdom, pride, strength, money, prestige, all these temptations, they're traps. And Jesus said it like this, you cannot have the love of God in you and seek the glory of man and not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God. And so when our hungers are driven by God's Spirit, we want His glory only. And we want Him to shave off the arrogance and the pride and the self-sufficiency and this mindset of making a name for ourselves in this age. We want to lay it at His feet and say, Jesus, be glorified in my life. That's what these deep, earnest desires that give us great joy and make us fully alive are for for a great reward when he comes because we've laid our life on the altar and we've lived as a faithful witness to his name.
What's so important about all of this in verse 5 through 8 is that his right hand upholds us. Yeah, we cling to him. We're determined to pursue him. We're to diligently seek him. Whoever has faith believes God is, and he's a, faithful, he's a, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. We're to seek him earnestly. We're to cling to him. We're to go after him. We're to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's his right hand and his steadfast love that upholds us. So when we've gone astray and we need our first love restored, when we've been lukewarm and we need to repent and be zealous, he's right there to give us strength, to sign up again, to go deeper into him, to push off those desires that are choking out the life of God in you. And indeed, it is so vital that we understand that this isn't just an option. It's not an option to be radically committed to Jesus. There's not like levels of Christian followers of Jesus. There's not the entry level and then the radical. We're all entry level, and we're all to be radical. And there's a process in our life by which he makes us radicals for him. And by radical, I mean like your whole life is to be consumed by Jesus, No matter what you're called to do, your one life calling is ultimately to bring glory to his name, to proclaim him without fear by the power of the Spirit, because he gave us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind to suffer hardship by the power of God for the gospel. That's a paradox. That's what he says in 2 Timothy. He says, because God gave you a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, suffer hardship for the gospel according to the power of God. Lean into the winds of adversity under the power of his presence in your life, the confidence of your love with a sound mind and the power on your inner man to stand firm as a witness to him, knowing just like you used to be hateful and fight against God, now you've surrendered to him and you've become more like him. So we demonstrate by laying our life down, being a witness, we demonstrate again what Jesus did in dying on the cross. He didn't revile. He didn't return an insult. And we're called to walk in his steps, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21. We're to follow in those steps and commit our souls to a faithful creator in doing good, even if we suffer for doing what's right. Because then the spirit of God and glory rests on you, 1 Peter 4. We have such hope, so many promises, so much power invested in us to walk this life out but we need to keep in touch with our desperation. We need to stick our neck out there and take the risks, and God will come through and give us power by his spirit. We need to fight off those paths of bad desires, pornography, whatever greed and gossip, wherever those doors open, close them, lock them, get help keeping them closed, and then seek God with your whole heart and get deep desire as ammunition to fight those simple little artificial plastic desires that they really are. They will turn into plastic and melt when you taste more deeply of the river of God's delight. That's the goal of God in this age is to make us a people who have such a strong appetite for him that in the age to come, if a serpent came slithering along and said, did God say, we'd crush his head right there. That's what God's doing in us now. He's making us a fierce people, fierce loyalty to the king, brave and confident as lions. 
The wicked flee when they hear a leaf, but the righteous are bold as a lion because our confidence is grounded deeply in him. And so we can be this kind of people, and we need to proclaim with authority this gospel because it's the one way for salvation. Those who do not believe God and obey the gospel will suffer vengeance from the angels when Jesus comes. In his glory. That's New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1. And so that helps us understand what David's doing in closing the psalm in what seems like such a drastic manner. It's called imprecatory in the psalms, where it seems like he's calling down judgments. But what he's actually doing is he's affirming God's final judgment. David closes the psalm, verse 9 through 11, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Remember, he's running from Saul. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There'll be a portion for jackals, foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. So those who rejoice in God are those who are surrendered and say yes to God. But those who don't are liars. They don't call God true. And therefore, every man a liar. And so when people don't confess that they're a liar, they don't believe God's narrative. They don't believe the scriptures. And in the end, they'll be judged. Revelation 21.8 says, the lake of fire, the second death, is for those who are liars, immoral, idolaters. And there is an end coming for those who don't surrender to the Lord. Don't give their whole heart to him and refuse and are self-sufficient and proud. God opposes the proud. And one day for those that don't repent, they will suffer the penalty of the second death. But those who are born of his spirit want to please the Lord and walk by the rule of the spirit, which is life and peace. And so if you're born again, you die once. If you're not, you die twice. And the second is the second death in the lake of fire. And so David is talking about that reality, that God will judge the wicked. But he entrusts himself to God, and he rejoices himself in God. We see the Psalms are very uh, prophetic and speak of things that are of the last things, eschatology. And they're very much uh, foreshadowings of Jesus. So David would say things, and it would be like a foreshadowing of Jesus like, depart from me, all you who do iniquity, and, and Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, is a quote from Psalm 6. And so often the Psalms are messianic, and we'll find those layers in there, and that's what's happening here. So, in closing, as the worship team comes forward, our deepest desires are rooted in eternity. And the Garden of Eden was God's design. And it's a reflection of what God will do again. He'll restore paradise, but this time there won't be a fall. There won't be opportunity for temptation. We'll be in glorified bodies that will never have any possibility of having anything in our mind of considering that God's holding out on us. And we'll know God in full, face to face. We'll look on his face and his name will be on our forehead, Revelation 22.4. What a promise. So Jesus said to the woman at the well, drink of this water and you'll never thirst. And the water that I give you will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
That's us who follow Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit who is a well to draw from, a spring of water that springs up to eternal life. And what is eternal life? But to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So we lean into intimacy with the Lord. We seek to know him better and meditate upon his word, receive of his spirit daily to be filled, and we say no to baser desires. And you'll see incremental growth in your hunger as you commit. We all know those times where we've really been committed to seeking the Lord. We look back and we go, wow, I really grew. If you grew stale, you grew stagnant, repent and be zealous. He'll make you warm again if you're lukewarm. If you've lost your first love, do the things you did at the first, Jesus said. Go back to what you used to do. What worked? It'll still work today. It may look different, but give your whole heart to this. Don't waste your life. Because ultimately, why do we have the Spirit? Paul says in Galatians 5.5, we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. How you know if you're walking in righteousness? You hunger for it. You don't feel like you have it, but you yearn for it. If you're confident that you're righteous, it's probably (laughs) self-righteousness. Probably. Well, (laughs) I know too well. (laughs) So hungering and thirsting for righteousness keeps you near to the Lord um, just because you're broken and you're receptive, not because you're working for it, because you're broken. Because ultimately we look for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells when the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So if we're bored with God, we need to repent because we've drunk deeply of the world system and we can't see his perspective clearly. We need a renewal of our mind. That's you today. Just repent. Tell Jesus you're sorry and give your life back to him. We're going to get ready to take communion And so as we get ready to take communion, you can prepare your hearts, and um, we're going to have four stations where you can go and grab your communion as usual. So Lord, we come before you right now. We thank you for your blood by which we draw near, and we come with praise and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.